The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. everybody and welcome back to the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. It was another weekend packed full of great action in the Six Nations, especially in Dublin, we think you'll agree. With Scotland also creating a bit of history and England getting a first win too under their new head coach, Steve Borthwick. You're joined as ever by myself, Ben Coles, along with Charlie Morgan. Hi Charlie. Hi Ben. And also this week, he's not being chased out of an Italian cafe for hogging all the Wi-Fi. It's Charles Richardson. Hello, Charles. Hello. What actually happened last week, Charles? Did you have to sort of make peace with a cafe end? Uh, yeah, so he'd sort of um, taken umbrage with the fact that I'd been sitting there in his cafe for two hours recording this podcast and he came over towards the end of the recording and sort of started shouting and gesticulating at me in Italian. If you can gesticulate in Italian, I think you probably can. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I had to settle up the bill very quickly or he wanted me to buy lots more stuff and um, get lost, really. Just making friends wherever you go. That's yeah, what we want the, that famous Rome hospitality. Relief to see you, really. <laughs> Yeah, made it. Yeah, made it back, yeah. Guys, can we kick off just by picking out some favourite moments of the weekend? I mean, there's plenty to choose from here, so I imagine we'll have a couple. Um, Charles, why don't we start with you? What did you really enjoy? Damien Penno's performance in uh, in the Aviva Stadium. I was obviously there and it was a privilege to be there. It was a privilege to watch that match, that first half in particular. And obviously, you know, it's it's becoming almost cliche now to sort of eulogise about Antoine Dupont, but his... Um, Hit that try-saving tackle. Honestly, I, I, I know it came across sensationally well on on the television um, pictures because I've seen them too. But it, it, in the stadium, it was sensational. It was one of the greatest things I've seen on a rugby field in person. I would say it was. What you, was the you, crowd noise like? It just it, it was it almost went sort of a bit deathly silent. You know yeah. that antip- You know that sort of weird sort of cathartic anticipation just before a goal scored in, in a, a screamer is scored in, in, in a football match and, and how it and then you hit, get that crunch where the ball hits the back of the neck and the crowd erupt in the neck the net and the and the crowd erupts well it was similar to that where there was just this silence um, where everyone was sort of taking this breath in and no one could quite believe it because everyone just assumed that it was a foregone conclusion that Matt Hansen was going to score, me included. And for all of DuPont's qualities, uh, you know, which are which are numerous, you, you didn't think that he was going to be able to haul him back from there and he did and it was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Would you, would you say that um, Anthony Jelanche's assist was better than Kyle Stain's assist for Duane van der Merwe last week. I mean, they're both assists, aren't they? Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite something. That was the, the, to turn on the half turn, so he's attracting the scrambling defender, and then to put it into Penno's path. Mm. And as soon as Penno got the ball, you th- I mean, how how far out was he? 35, 40 mm. meters. You thought, no, he's in. Yeah, but d- because no, of definitely. the quality of that offer. And even though there was cover defence, you were like, nah. He's with 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 the sort of the time that Jalon should put on the ball in the air, and the, the, it was the perfect trajectory, the perfect path right into right into sort of um, Dupont's uh, running angle, and with and coming at that angle, even with the defence coming across, it was like, no, he's gone. Do you know this is going to be one of the tries of the championship? Already, I imagine we're going to get into the best Six Nations games that we've ever seen, but already those two teams, just how they've progressed over this last World Cup cycle. I mean, last year was an awesome game between them as well but it's the it's how it's such a game of chess between them you know 
France are sorry you know Ireland are capable with going through phases from deep but actually France did that to score that try didn't they it mm. came out of a kicking exchange and they were the ones that kind of held their nerve and went deep with um, Ramos kind of batting on that ball inside yeah. his own 22 and that's why that's just why that it's so fantastic to have these teams at the top of their game in the Six Nations because you can see them almost feeling one another out it was just it was fantastic to watch yeah I'm sure we'll get onto this later but a mate of mine a mate of mine um, texted me yesterday he he plays for his local club on a Saturday um, afternoon so he missed he missed um, Ireland France because obviously it clashed with his match and you know he sort of said oh you know is this like doom and gloom for France you know Ireland Ireland gave them a proper walloping didn't they like battered them and this that and the other and it was sort of like no, it didn't really feel like that at all. Like, I, know, I know the scoreline says one thing, and, and Ireland were deserved and, and in the end comfortable victors, but it, it didn't feel like, you know, the, the, it, it didn't feel one sided yeah. at all. I mean, you look at that, there was nothing in it at half time. There was six points in it um, with France seemingly able to score from anywhere until Ringrose scored that try. Um, and, then, and then obviously, yeah, Ringrose did um, sort of nail that coup de grace at the end. Yeah, Charlie, what was your fair moment? What did you like? I loved Hugo Keenan's try just because of how it's the same Joe Schmidt strike play that's been around for Leinster and then for Ireland for a decade and they've refined it and now they do it off um, goal line dropout returns, kind of stealing. I think Australia and South Africa used it back and forth over the rugby championship together, but just so slick and that fe- and that support play. Sorry, as as Keenan went through, just a real sign of a cohesive team, really in tune. Kalen uh, Doris Doris's offloads in the second half. I think there, oh. there was one obviously for Ringrose's try, but before that, he sort of um, shot his hand through contact, sucked in two defenders, and f- kind of flipped. Flipped it through the eye of a needle to yeah. potentially James Lowe. As he was going down to ground, as he was being Just tackled, it was a beauty. Amazing. And, and for, for a guy who, I mean, him and him and Keenan, I'd say, two of the potentially slightly obvious, probably not anymore, but World 15 players in, in Ireland's side because they just suit that high tempo high ball in play multi-phase really really intricate they just make that tick for Ireland and the way that they've come on over this cycle has really elevated Ireland especially Keenan being that second ball player but also also Doris having the grunt having the street smarts around the tackle area but also just the skill and so diligent in everything he does footwork before contact to make those extra metres just a wonderful player any moments from Wales' attack getting in the uh Highlights of the weekend. Moving on. I think I, think I was going to... For me, it was probably going to be Anton Dupont's tackle on Matt Hansen, which just didn't make sense. Because <laughs> the strength that he showed in the area of the field that he showed, how often does momentum just get the attacker over the line there? I thought that was incredible. Um, Finn Russell's offload to Carlstein was pretty nice. That try, in fact, Finn Russell's, Finn Russell's game in general was just pretty nice, to be honest. He was brilliant for Scotland as they... I was, I think, thrashed Wales. I think it's fair to say. I mean, mm. we'll get, we'll get on to Wales, but there's a lot of concern there. And and also just for Jack Willis, we'll talk a bit more about Jack Willis and what his his position long term. But I think after everything he'd been through with the injury at City a couple of years ago, he sort of said afterwards as well. He was like, "Look, I've had had the horror injury two years ago. Wasps have gone bust. I saw my parents in the crowd during the anthem. Was like, I didn't understand how he wasn't bawling his eyes out because I mean, the combination of all of those things." It's a hell of a lot. He did so well. So loads of highlights. Let's focus first, though, on on England's game against Italy on Sunday. We'll dive into that next. Okay, so England are up and running under the sea, Borthwick, and they've got a win. And parts of it were were quite good, and then parts of it were a bit 
Meh. Charlie, what did you what did you like and what did you not like? Meh is a uh, flawless description there, I think. I think the size of the task that Steve Borthwick has taken on is is becoming more and more clear, isn't it? And I think it, you have to have you have to look at it as far as the component parts that he is getting he is addressing um with this England side. They were um fragile in in, in the scrum. They were pretty impotent around the mall. Um he's seems to be addressing that the scrum was um superior to italy's the mall obviously carved out a lot of their uh their attacking opportunities and their points which um were seriously handy given how italy had gone against france i think the attack potentially in phase play took a took a step backwards but i think then you have to think that Owen Fowler and Marcus Smith had been on the pitch for all but I think half an hour um, accounting for Smith's yellow card in the second test in, in Australia and Smith's injury against South Africa all of the previous eight tests they had been on the pitch together so you're putting in a new midfield and this isn't jam tomorrow because that has certainly not been the rhetoric that, that Steve Borthwick is is trying to kind of implement um, but it's just a just realistic that's just where England are England are below this chasing pack Eddie Jones was kind of trying to make the point and trying to stress that England were part of the chasing pack I think going towards the World Cup they, it's going to be pretty impressive if Steve Borthwick gets them up to speed um, but they have got that handy side of the draw as far as this Six Nations I think it's going to be a real dogfight in Wales with a lot of kicking a lot of desperation and I think they can potentially get close to France at home but you fear for them in Ireland and that just is where England are and the manifestation of that was in was in this performance against Italy, which was bitty, um, but encouraging. If you if you scratch below the surface and look at the set piece improvements, look at the fact that he got two players with real with with X factor on the field. I would say in, in Jack Willis and, and Ollie Lawrence, and they enhanced England. Um, he wants to get Henry Arundel back for sure to give them a little bit more of that explosive pace. It is slowly coming together, but. England supporters are going to have to be patient and you know we have flagged this it is worth remembering too that he's only been there for the best part of two weeks you know and there has been even in that short period of time from one game to the next tangible improvements and yeah I suppose there is any sort of betting man would fear for them in Dublin and on the on the last weekend of the Six Nations but but you know they if they continue improving at this rate from from one week to the second round and if they continue that in Wales they continue against France there won't be there won't there won't be any pushovers in Dublin in that in that final in that final game and you know that they'll go with a plan and you know that there'll be clarity and you know that you know on a one-off game maybe Borthwick and Simfield might have a bit of a master plan to sting the Irish I don't know whether he listens to this podcast Steve Borthwick I doubt it but Me too. he d- he did mention oh, after the game after the game on Sunday he mentioned that Scotland, um, Ireland, France, Italy, importantly Italy, are have built momentum over this four year cycle and, and looking look really cohesive as far as what they're doing with the ball and what they have as far as a plan during games. England are starting afresh in some areas and I think we're going to get onto their late fades potentially that's a worrying habit obviously mm. but they look like a side that's sort of mentally burdened with taking on all this information and trying to put it out on the field and work into this plan that they that will get them um, will get them kind of singing off the same hymn sheet eventually but it's a process and it's a process that's happening that's being played out against sides that are just further along and they nearly you know they nearly scraped scraped that win against Scotland they they were they weren't great in all in all aspects, but did enough to to get through that. Didn't quite obviously. Um, and Italy came full of optimism. 
And and you know and you know fell short. England got England got through what could have been a really really awkward test and was looking to be an awkward test sort of when they faded um, during the third during the third and fourth quarter against a side that was spreading the ball again. I thought Balfour played all the right notes afterwards. Reading some of the quotes when he talked about small step forward, this is the first layer. He's really trying to lower expectations, isn't he? And and right so I think because he sort of want he doesn't want to be. He's not coming out with sort of bombast, bombastic quotes about what is going to happen with this England side. It, if we just focus on one selection in particular with Ollie Lawrence as well, he, he's not necessarily your classic inside centre, but obviously he can play 12 and, he, and he's got so much power as we saw with that great line break where I think he steamrolled over Tommaso Allen, was it? Mm. it what, what did you like, Charles, about <clears throat> Lawrence's performance? And if, if Kelly is... Kelly's going to be out for the Six Nations. We know that now. Is this the combination that you wanted seeing that stick with necessarily move forward? I think it is, yeah. I think that against Scotland, certainly England were found wanting in the sort of explosive ball-carrying areas of their, of their attacking play. It was, again, she had to shoulder a lot of that responsibility against Scotland. And it, and it was similar against, similar against Italy, to be honest. I mean, the, there have been improvements there with the inclusion of Oli Lawrence, and he certainly gave... That that midfield a focal point, and he gave the forwards a target, and he gave um, he, he was an option for England to generate more attacking momentum. But there's not enough there, really. When it slowed down against Italy again, it was a, a sort of let's give it to Genge or let's give it to Sinclair and and hope that they can conjure something a little bit spectacular. I do think that England are still one or two, probably one to be honest, a, a real heavy duty ball carrier short I mean it's it's very unfashionable opinion but I will maintain that I still think there's a place in this side for Billy Vunipola I really do at number eight I think that he has um, his pitfalls he has his shortcomings in in other areas of the game of course but in terms of carrying in the in the in the sort of close quarters in the tight exchanges there aren't many better number eights um, in the world, to be honest, in terms of the real, the real tight areas and running into opposition forwards, tying them in and still getting go forward, and that's where England are struggling a little bit. When it, when, when they get front football, when they get momentum, when they play at pace, they look great. The attacking shape comes in, but with, with the greatest respect, that's the, that's similar to of most teams. When most teams get that, they look great. It's how you get that, and England at times struggle to sort of generate that momentum and that's why as well as many other things that's one of the reasons why they sort of look to kick more I think in the attacking 22 and that was a big criticism of them yesterday that they kicked too much attacking ball away I think it's because when it slows down they sort of they don't really have much of an idea about how to get it going again so they sort of that they run out of ideas and Farrell thinks right well let's let's kick Van Portfleet thinks let's kick let's a bit of variety. Let's keep the defence on their toes. Whereas, in actual fact, with the with with a Billy Vunipola or with, as we said, somebody like Arundel on the wing who can bring something out of nothing, there's a threat there. There's more threats. I just don't think they have enough ball carrying threats, and that was shown by, you know, Lawrence has been excellent for Bath, but as you said, he's playing out of position for England. When he was included yesterday, it, there was a noticeable improvement, and that's because. Th- th- you bring in ball-carrying threats into that team, into a team that was lacking them, and suddenly it's mu- they're much, much more difficult to defend. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how close Tom Willis gets. Um, we know Steve Borthwick's a big fan, and there was a um, video sent round. I can't remember whether I mentioned it last week or not of his performance against Stad for Bordeaux, and he was throwing throwing defenders off him. 
Um, he's just he's, he's skillful, like his like his brother Jack, and he's just that bit hefty, really good on his feet. If you remember how Alfie Barbary kind of burst on the scene, and he had that weird knack of being able to almost absorb tacklers, almost maybe take half a step back and then sort of shrug them off and carry on going. Tom Willis, there's a bit of that about Tom Willis. Um, whether he comes in for the Six Nations or ahead of the World Cup, I really wouldn't be surprised. And obviously, there's Mercer there too. Um, yeah, that that would be that would be an area where maybe looking to looking to freshen up and add, mm. as Charles say, that add that extra carrier. And what I would say as well is, I don't think just for anybody listening who's thinking, you know, what's wrong with Alex Dombrand? I don't think he had a bad game yesterday per se, but but you know, as as we continue to say to people, it's not necessarily about that. It's about is there better. You know, is there is there better out there to, to to give England an option or in in the areas in which they're weak? And I think there might be. There was nothing wrong with Alex Dombrant's performance yesterday. He was he put in a perfectly respectable showing, but is he the sort of correct number eight to sort of plug the gaps where England are struggling at the minute? And I'm I'm not sure he is. We partially answered a question that we had there from Simon Dixon, which was about why was why was Farrell kicking so often when in the attack of 22 and. And what the stats for success on doing that, rather than having sort of patience with ball in hand. And I think let's just hear a bit from Steve Bullfield afterwards, and then I want to dive into another question, which is sort of why England dropped off and what might be behind that. So let's hear from Steve Bullfield now. I think there was certainly positive steps forward, some small steps forward. I think, and credit to the players for working really hard to make those improvements. You know, we're trying to rebuild this team, and, and I think we've we've took some took some steps forward in that regard over these first few weeks. Playing to improve upon, I thought, ultimately, I, I think we left some chances out there. I think our rook speed could have been better. I think you saw it was recognisable when our rook speed went up. We stressed the defence more when our rook speed slowed down. We didn't. Um, so I think we've got to make sure we're consistent improvement in that regard. And ultimately, again, the we conceded some opportunities to the opposition late in the game. And... We'll have a good look at why, because that's some two weeks running now. We were in a winning position late in the game last week and then let it slip. Um, so we'll have a good look at that and make sure we're better for that in our, in our next game. That was Steve Borthwick sort of reflecting on England's first win under his tenure yesterday. We had another question which I wanted to go into, which is sort of linked to why England didn't sort of play with the same, quite the same intensity in that second half. And it's from Daniel, Daniel Cullinane and he says... England's intensity dropped off in the second half. How much of this is down to fitness? And until Allard Waters begins, which was confirmed by the RFU last week, I think, who is responsible for the strength and conditioning? And, and is that an area that needs to be looked at? I think that's quite an interesting question because we know that Leicester really sort of thrived having Waters at the club after his stint with the Springboks, and that was a huge part of their success mm-hmm. under both. Is there a link there, do you think? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, so at the minute, um, just to answer that question quite... Matter of factly, John Clark was head of strength and conditioning, and then, uh, for whatever reason, has has departed when when Steve Borthwick has come in. And now, as far as we understand it, I don't think there was an official announcement from the RFU, but I, I think as far as we understand it, it's now the remit of Tom Tomlinson, who was um, John Clark's um, understudy before. Um, but obviously, we know that Alid Walters is coming in at the end of the season alongside Richard Wigglesworth from Leicester to sort of. Get the, get the band back together, if you will, that Leicester band, um, and his achievements and um, abilities in that in that area speak for themselves. You know what he did with South Africa. You remember that viral picture that that, that was on all over social media ahead of that 2019 World Cup of the South Africans in the was in the in the shower room afterwards. They don't worry, they still had shorts on, but topless and just they they were they were you know Greek 
sculptures, Adonis, Adonis, uh, you know, Adonis galore, really. Um, every single one of them, from the, from scrum halves, fly halves, fullback, front row, they were all. There was not a, an ounce of body fat on them, and we know, we know full well that that Leicester's fitness last season, their ability to close out tight games in the second half, was excellent under this quartet. And if England's line speed yesterday in the first half was tremendous. Really, really tremendous. Um, so they can do it for 40 minutes, certainly. What, what, well, they can do what Kevin Sinfield is trying to implement in 40 minutes. Are they fit enough to do it for the full 80 at international level? Who knows? That remains to be seen. The evidence at the minute suggests maybe not. And that will be the task of Alid Walters, which is what the, he did at Leicester alongside Kevin Sinfield, alongside Steve Borthwick, was to, Im- was to make sure that the players are fit enough to implement this very, very aggressive Sinfield defensive strategy for a full 80 minutes. Yeah, the England's defence, Charles quite right to point out, that was reminiscent of their of their real bullying games against Ireland, I thought, in, in 2020, I think. Um, just really swarming, really disruptive. Obviously, Sam Underhill was a big part of that. Sam Underhill, Tom Curry were a big part, part of that, but Lewis Ludlam and Jack Willis were kind of leading it this time round, both of them over 20 tackles, Willis, amazingly, I think 22 in however many, 53 minutes, I think, before he came off. Um, so the two, talking about Alad Walters, two big strengths we know he has. One, huge charisma, hugely popular with all of the players that he's he's been under, and it's remarkable. You speak to anybody about Alad Walters, you will get huge positivity, huge grins, and a massive, massive endorsement. Ellis Genge was the last one who was asked, I think, on Friday, he said, yeah, he's is an incredible motivator. He that's how he that's what he does. He galvanizes groups. He's brilliant at that, and that really helps. We t- we talk a lot about how Steve Borthwick looks to other looks to delegate responsibility because he's aware Steve Borthwick is of what he isn't necessarily a mass, massively gifted in. The other thing is that Alad Waters again is really gifted when it comes to tailoring a fitness program to. A, a tactical framework because he's regarded at Leicester and he was was at South Africa under uh, Jack Nienaber and um, Razi Erasmus as a coach. He, he, he's a coach. He's got got that inherent knowledge of what it takes to to tailor play to tailor ta- players fitness programs to ha- how much ball and play time there's going to be, for instance. And you saw, I think that's where a little bit of where England are. Um, struggling. We mentioned the mental fatigue earlier. I, I do think that's a. I do think that's a an issue because they are trying to take on a lot of information. I, although I imagine Steve Borthwick would have packaged that fairly sympathetically, but also it's certainly been noticeable that in the last two games, um, first Scotland and then Italy have have fancied themselves in the last twenty minutes, and they've you know they've spread the ball from deep. They've run. They've run exit plays, and they've really they've really tested England, and they've looked a little bit ragged, England. We'll, we'll touch on a few more England issues a bit later, but just to round off this section on, on Italy, really, is it fair to be quite disappointed with this after what we saw against France? I think particularly the fact that they couldn't quite cope with what England had up front. Charles, you were you were there last week. What, what did you sort of see from Italy this week compared to last week? Quite a big regression? Certainly in the first half, yes, but I think the way that they rallied in the second half, especially after losing their very inspirational captain, um, Michele Lamoureux, in uh, to, well, we were told a, a failed HIA, but he was all he, what he did limp off as well. So I don't know unless he walks with his head how that how that works, but I suppose it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he could have both an injury to his leg and his head. But he continued playing on um, very valiantly with a leg injury. Yeah, but it's a tricky one because. They they obviously tried to play a lot with the ball in hand um, 
in, in the first half and they were guilty of overplaying a bit at times I think England lapped up when when England were very fresh England defensively lapped up everything that Italy threw at them with the ball and I think what this Italy side needs to learn is a bit of game management and sometimes how to be a little bit more pragmatic. Yes, when it opened up in the second half and they started sort of, you know, chucking it about a bit more, that that, that paid dividends for them. But that was the right time to do that. I don't think against this fresh defence, against Jack Willis making, making 14 tackles in 25 minutes, that was necessarily the right time. They, they might have been a little bit better just taking a step back, being a little bit more pragmatic. And also, once once, once the referee has made his mind up, in terms of what's happening at the scrum, and he made his mind up very early, did, did the New Zealander James Dolman, it becomes very, very difficult to change his mind. I actually think that maybe a bit of Eddie Jones' ruthlessness might have not got, gone amiss there for Italy, and to just take Richie only off and bring Ferrari on. Ferrari started at tie-head against France, went really well in the scrum. Um, there was obviously a selection call this week to bring Riccioni in, and Riccioni's a fabulous player, and it, it's not a slight on him, but as I said, once... Once the referee makes his mind up at international rugby on which way the scrum's going, as England found out against South Africa and as on the highest profile stage of all, really, England 2003, the 2003 win where England were reft off the park at the scrum completely unfairly by Andre Watson against Australia. But once he'd made his mind up as to what was going on at the scrum, it, comes, it becomes very difficult to change their mind. Um, and I think that became a massive issue for them in the first half because they just couldn't get a foothold in the game at all. Um, the scrum penalty was leading to a five-meter line-out, which was leading to pressure, more pressure. Then you've got a yellow card. Then you're down to 14 men. You lose your captain. And suddenly at half-time, it actually looked like they were they were good value at 19-0 down. It looked like they were sort of they got away with one, only trailing by 19 points. So the way that they came back and the way that at one point you know we turned to each other and thought. Jesus, if they get the next score here at what was it, twenty six fourteen, and at twenty six fourteen, I think it was Negri who burst up the middle, and then Capuazzo broke down the left, and it was like Jesus, if they get the next score here, it's it's properly game on. And I think for them, after a really sloppy first half, I think they did continue on that upward curve from last week, where they are. I wouldn't. The real deal is probably a little bit too far, but this is a this is an Italian team that that were not you know a one trick pony at a flash in the pan last weekend against France. Capuazzo didn't disappoint; he was fantastic to watch. Yeah, um, just a real, actually, kind of a little bit reminiscent of what of what Keenan does for Ireland as far as being that second playmaker and just buzzing around in the second and third layer and then just darting in and stinging. He got an inside offload, I think. Um, and and really kind of really tested England. Um, I think he beat fourteen defenders, which is pretty re- pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, I th- England have kind of got this habit, haven't they? It reminded me a little bit of the Japan match in in November when a side overplays a little bit and potentially doesn't haven't got those explosive carriers. They can they can get in, they can run into cul de sacs a lot against England. Um, but no, it was it was enjoyable watching them for sure. They certainly certainly could give it a crack and, and did do right until the end. That's a really good review of that. Let's chat about the other games next. And I think let's go over to Dublin for probably the best 40 minutes of Six Nations rugby ever, maybe. We'll have a tell about it next. Okay, the weekend kicked off with an absolute belter <coughs> with Ireland against France. It, so much to enjoy. It was a phenomenal game. We're, we're going to be joined by former Ireland international Alan Quinlan to get his take on what Saturday's result means for Ireland's title hopes and and also beyond, really, ahead of the, the tournament that's happening in France later this year called the Rugby World Cup, which might suddenly have taken on a new look after that result. Just in terms of our interpretations of it, 
did, I think it's worth asking, is that 40 minutes of, of the first half, and in fact the game as a whole, is it the best Six Nations game that you've ever seen just for quality between two teams? Charlie, why don't I get to you first on that? Yes, I think, but I think for chaos, there have been more chaotic ones. I think in England, yeah. France in 2015, that was that felt mad. But for sure, for sheer everything that was happening was not only sort of very entertaining. There were just moments of brilliance from both sides defensively. Cyril by how many how many how many times was he involved in holding up twice? Oh, twice, just yeah. incredible mobility and strength from him. We've talked, we've spoken about the uh, Dupont try saver um sean edwards would have been fizzing i imagine with the with the dummy loop play that um ireland went through on but i mean i don't think he could really fault the commitment um defensive commitment from france um so yeah short answer absolutely uh yeah i'd agree um i think i think to be honest i think i'd I'd broaden it actually i think the first half was probably the best first half but the best 40 minutes of rugby i've ever seen i think um, in terms of quality and sustained quality, and just for actually, because it was it it was it had such quality to it, but there was also a little bit of chaos. You know, there was a little bit of chaos which you need for drama and anticipation, and and it did have everything that first half. You know, at half time, you were sort of thinking, surely there can't be another forty minutes of this, and you just didn't want it to end. When the half time whistle went, there was a sense around the Aviva Stadium of a of, of I mean, there is anyway, really, because you're there watching the game. But there was a sense of, oh no, does it really? have to stop can it not can this not just keep going and the second half wasn't quite you know it was it was more disciplined and it was slightly slower and it wasn't quite it couldn't quite live up to the billing of the first but that but that didn't but it, it, i mean it had such high expectations after the after the first half um that it was never going to live up to the first half i don't think but it, it was still really really good let's see what former Ireland international alan quinlan made of the game he spoke with charles a short while ago yeah they were exceptional charles uh it was uh um, an unbelievable performance. I think it was a great game for any neutrals watching the game. It was incredibly exciting, and uh, the quality and the the, uh, the energy of of the game was was superb. Um, yeah, I'm just impressed with Ireland. I, I think after what happened in 2019, when we had similarities with the way 2018 finished up, mm. um, all us Irish people are a little bit nervous that uh, we don't we before the Six Nations, that we don't get another year like that. Um, but I think this team has kicked on and they've shown that um, they're a top-quality side and that their game and structure and work rate and, and organisation is, is is superb. A lot of the players um, keep speaking about the environment, how happy and enjoyable a place it is to be and how driven they are. So, um, collectively, they've been superb. I think they've... Uh, you know they're they're playing with confidence, self belief, and they seem to be able to answer questions when the opposition put pressure on them. You know, you go back to New Zealand losing that first test in Auckland, the way they responded, and the messages all that week were about fixing things, really believing they could fix some issues and and things that went on in that first test, and they did that in in test two and three, and they were outstanding. November was a little bit different. Um, I think they were really good against South Africa. It was a, it was a very good win uh, against Fiji and Australia. A little bit flatter and probably fortunate mm. in the end against Australia. But they've hit the ground running here in the Six Nations and um, and changed gears, I think. And uh, it's it's very impressive. Mm. And what what is the ceiling, do you think, of this Irish team? You've touched on it already, but obviously they had that, that disappointment in 2019 after such 
success under Joe Schmidt in the Six Nations. Um, do you think it's this is the year where they can finally break that sort of quarterfinal hoodoo that's that's been bugging them at, at a World Cup level? No matter what happens, um, Charles, in, in, in the Six Nations, even if they go on and win the championship or win a Grand Slam, um, it, it doesn't matter what happens. I think it's still going to come down to very small margins at the World Cup and Ireland haven't got past the quarterfinal and it's a bit of a stick that's, that keeps getting uh, used to beat the Irish rugby team when, when they get to that situation. So, um, obviously, if you had a choice as a coach or a player or a fan, you'd want your team winning and going into a World Cup with really good form. Um, I think the world has taken notice of them. Every international team now, you know, sometimes you get people who are being diplomatic and, and um, given compliments and you're not really sure if they really mean them. But uh, there's a lot of people now who are saying things about Ireland that are very complimentary. And, and it's true because and they deserve it because of the way they're playing and the way they have played. But ultimately, it's going to be very small margins. You know, Scotland are are, doing, are going well. They're in the group, um, South Africa. So only two of those are going to come out of the group, South Africa, Ireland, Scotland. Um, so one thing that the Irish rugby team, and particularly Andy Farrell, won't do is get ahead of themselves mm-hmm. because he was there in 2019. Some of the players were, and... They're very cautious and aware of of, of the, how quickly things can change. But at the moment, they've got to enjoy it and really believe that they're on the right track. I think they're better equipped this time because they have more of an attacking uh, threat to their game. Um, on Saturday, they showed that they can play a kicking game as well if needs be. So I think they're better equipped going when the World Cup comes. No matter what happens, even in the next three Six Nations games, I think they can take um, a lot out of the way they're playing in the conference. But ultimately, um, you know, if they come out of the group, they're going to be playing France or New Zealand. And that's a toss of a coin on the day because I think both Fran- France will get stronger. They'll learn from what happened at the weekend. Um, they have incredible players. And, you know, New Zealand always, always get it right or, yeah. or nearly get it right in the World Cup. So it's a, it's a big challenge either way. I mean, you touched on it there, but I mean, it's not inconceivable, is it, that, that Ireland don't even get out of the group? I mean, I mean, it's it's unlikely at, at this stage, you'd say, but but certainly, it's defeating both Scotland and South Africa is not a foregone conclusion, is it? No, it's not, and and it never is. Even even if their form is really good, they've got to go to Murrayfield in a few weeks, and that's mm. an incredibly tough challenge for them. So the good thing is their feet will be firmly on the ground, Charles, and I think that's important. Um, but when you're winning and you're having success, you've got to enjoy it as well and embrace it and 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 build on it. Um, you know, there's only one way down when you're on the top, and that's uh, it, it, it's so difficult to maintain that. And that is the challenge for them now between here and, and the World Cup is maintaining um, a good balance in their mentality, their performances, but also even still bringing some more players through. Andy, Andy Farrell has capped 30 players since he's taken over from Joe Schmidt, which is a big number. Mm-hmm. He's he ca- new caps. Um, he's played 66 or 67 players. So the timing and the preparation and the plan for this World Cup cycle has been very good. Um, I think the biggest thing to come out of the weekend is, um, and the biggest winner is Ross Byrne coming off the bench mm-hmm. because Everybody speaks about Johnny Sexton and how good he's been and how good he is for this team and a great leader. But, you know, he went off the field in 49 minutes and Ross Byrne looked really comfortable and 
and uh, looked like you know he can he can do a very good job there as well. So plus you know there's no type furlong Dan Sheehan, yeah. Gibson Park, Robbie Henshaw. So um, he's loving the fact that they're they're being stressed and tested. Um, I know France are missing a few players as well, and ultimately you know it could come down to that a few players missing and and these experiences will hopefully be beneficial for Ireland but no matter what happens you know that group is is a nightmare group really isn't it yeah and you've touched on it already the the trip to to Edinburgh in um, just under a fortnight's time um can you remember a sort a sort of more hotly anticipated match between Ireland and Scotland and, and one that has the potential to be sort of such high quality with what we've seen from both those two teams in the, in the first two rounds of the Six Nations so far? Yeah, well, they've got Italy next, which is is, 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 is the next game. And then after that, it's the Scottish game. So um, they have, they'll certainly not underestimate Italy because uh, we saw what they did against France in round one. But yeah, it is going to be eagerly anticipated. You assume that Ireland will win the game in Italy. Yeah. Um, and I think Andy Farrell is going to pick a strong team. Historically, you know, you have seven or eight, ten changes in that game sometimes. But I think he's going to respect, really respect the Italians, make minimal changes. Just some guys chomping at the bit that are feel they should be in the team, maybe need game time. Robbie Henshaw could come back in the mix. Furlong, Gibson Park, Henshaw. These guys could come back in the mix. Dan Sheehan as well. But... You know, that game in Murrayfield is it, it's it's just getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? And uh, yeah. it's always a tough game, and there's always a little bit of niggle in the in those fixtures because Scotland will really fancy their chances as well, and it's a home game. And the biggest issue with Scotland in the last number of years is is inconsistency. They're they're capable of big performances. It's the first time since the mid '90s that they won the back to back for their first. Two, two home Six Nations games or first two put two Six Nations games together in mm. the first round and round two so um, yeah they're a very capable side and, and you know if Gregor Townsend and Scotland were to, to beat Ireland well they elevate themselves so much further uh, up, uh, from that sort of a result or possible performance as well so yeah it's going to be a cracker of a game and one that's um, we'll re- everyone will be really looking forward to and, and as a former Irish um, back row forward yourself, just how impressed have you been by the by the form of, of Caelan Doris at number eight, who put in another marvellous showing on on Saturday in that France win? It's no surprise to me. I think uh, this guy has been so good for the last 12, 12 months, I think. Uh, and even his response, I think in, I, I mentioned the first test in Auckland. He had a relatively quiet game in that, that test match, but in, in test two and three, just exceptional. Um, I think he's he's just world class now at this stage. I think he's so good when he's attacking. His footwork, his skills, um, and at the breakdown, he turns ball over and makes huge number of tackles as well. He's he's a real modern day uh, number eight, and I think it's fair to say that he is world class now and, and playing exceptionally well. Something you didn't speak to Ireland about, Charles, was the James Lowe try. Um, some of the pictures coming out after the match suggest it probably should not have stood. What did you make of it? I think the, the fundamental, the fundamental flaw with it all was that it was given as on-field try to start off with by the touch judge and referee Wayne Barnes. I think that was the initial error that that sort of set the the, the ball in motion. 
And once once you've done that, you need conclusive proof to obviously overturn it. And at the time, there wasn't conclusive proof to overturn it. But I just struggle to believe how the touch judge, as Fabien Galtier pointed out after the game, the touch judge was three metres away from James Lowe, maybe less. He must have seen James Lowe's both of his feet, at least in the realms of, of touch. He must have seen James Lowe finishing up in touch. If they've seen the ball on the line, then they've also seen the ball exceedingly close to the end goal because, I mean, that is another issue in itself. Did the ball touch the end goal line? It's you simultaneous. Know. So it? it looks simultaneous. So with how near it was to end goal, with how far he was, he would have ended up in touch, with his feet flailing around into touch, it should have been given on-field no try. I'm not sure how you can give that as on-field try considering how much doubt there must have been. I know there was a ball grounded on or near the line, but... The, there needs to be more factors taken into the decision there, I think. And once they gave it as on-field try, they needed conclusive proof that only came out at half-time in the match. Yeah, Gary Ringrose's try at the end was kind of handy in that regard, wasn't it, to give it a bit of breathing space so it wasn't so pivotal. But obviously, everything changes, doesn't it? It's kind of a butterfly effect. But yeah, I agree. I totally agree with Charles. He explained it really well there. I just want to mention a quick stat. France scored... 19 points despite spending only 57 seconds in Ireland's 22. And Ireland managed to keep them out for the other 79 minutes. I mean, that is remarkable. I mean, it, it sort of highlights France's sort of efficiency of actually getting in the red zone and scoring as well as how uh, well Ireland defended. And highest highest ball in playtime of any international match for five years, six years, something like that? Isn't well, it's really no coincidence then that we all really enjoyed it if there was a lot of ball in playtime. Well, time. quite, yeah. Charlie, you, you couldn't wait to talk about it beforehand. I mean, I actually had a question about it from Derek Morris, who just simply asked, why was Antonio not given a red card? Would you like to sort of, to map that out and explain that for us? Why was he not sent off? He was not sent off um, because Wayne Barnes didn't see it as a high degree of danger, I think, because he thought the first point of contact was on the chest and or on the shoulder and, and rode up. And Matthew Carley's face said it all. I think he, his expression spoke for a few of us. He was sort of a bit nonplussed Matthew Carley it should be said has given a couple of reds recently that have been rescinded so um, he would potentially err on the kind of the, the, <laughs> the other side of it but no I just thought I just thought that Antonio had a, a real plain um, line of sight he had a fair way to travel before he met Rob Herring and he stayed upright so he was always running that risk and I don't really understand the, the no um, high, the the fact that there wasn't a high degree of danger or moderate degree no. of danger or however it got explained away. But um, Antonio has been cited and he would, I think, be pretty close to certainly missing the next two rounds. And that's a big that's a big blow because he's a hell of a player. I'm not sure it is that much of a blow, actually. I'm going to disagree with you. Do you ready? Go yeah. ahead. You ready? That's fine. Falatea came off the bench and was an absolute firecracker for France on Saturday. And I didn't actually think that Antonio was particularly good in, in terms of uh, the rest of the game. I, I thought that was a... Uh, the, the tackle aside, um, I don't think he does enough. He offers enough for a man of his size. Um, set piece, he was solid, nothing more. You'd like to see, again, a man of that stature be more destructive. And Falatea came on and it was played like a back row forward. Uh, and I was, I was dead, dead, dead impressed. Just on the tackle, I do think Barnes was slightly hampered by by the guidelines and by the framework there because once they decided that first contact was on the chest which they had sure? no I don't think I am sure but they that's what they decided and again I, I don't think the 
TV angles were necessarily conclusive that it was on the... I'm not saying he didn't make contact with the head, but I thought first contact was the chest. And then as soon as they've decided that, that is therefore, regardless of the fact that Antonio follows through with an absolutely gigantic hit and clobbers um, uh, Herring in the head and forces him off for an HIA, once they've decided that initial contact is on the chest... I think it makes it very difficult to give a red card. In fact, I don't think you can unless unless it's in the yeah. neck area because I think once it's or chest it's, first... Or it's illegal for another reason. Or it's illegal. It. And I mean, that arm was suspiciously tucked from Antonio. I think there was a wrap and there certainly was a wrap on the other side. So it was it was a very dubious tackle. But I think in terms of the way that Barnes explained it, he came to the right decision. But I just don't necessarily think the framework allowed for a... I don't think the framework's correct if that tackle is a yellow card, is, is what, I, what, what I would say. If World Rugby come out and say that Wayne Barnes was correct to give a yellow card for that, then I don't think the framework works, because you're right. How can you possibly say that that car crash of a tackle where the player has failed an HIA is a low degree of danger, with Weenie Antonio is one of... Well, no, he is probably the biggest... Biggest bloke in the Six Nations? Yeah, the biggest Tier 1 rugby player in, in the traditional Tier 1 nations. I mean, I can't think of many bigger. And he has come in and absolutely marmalised Herring there. Um, yes, he, OK, he caught him on the chest first. And if that's what meant that it was a yellow, not red, then fair enough. But you can't, you can't sit there in good faith and say that just because he's caught him on the chest and then gone to the head, that it's not a high degree of danger. Just another quite interesting point about France and referees. This, they got whistled off the park, didn't they, in Rome? And we spoke last week about how defensive breakdown has been so important for them and, and going being really aggressive there. And I just wonder what what sort of doubt that sows in their mind for the rest of the, t- the tournament. For, um, Ireland had, I'm just checking out the stats here, Ireland had 142 rucks in Dublin and won 136 of them. So they still lost six, which is, you know which is ind- indicative of a, of a side that have gone pretty well at the breakdown and with Julian Marchand around, they're always going to be pretty pretty good there. But it's just interesting to see how that plays out for the rest of the tournament because it's just so vital how that breakdown gets refereed. Point on Antonio as well, he, he would be the first guy who'd probably be, I know it's such a lazy trope that France are kind of unfit and are going to be struggling with high ball in playtime, but he would be one guy that you would expect mm. to do that. And he would also probably suffer with if referees are going to be stringent on the defensive breakdown as well because that's another one of his kind of yeah. talents so just interesting to see how France kind of adapt I think we're going to get onto the question aren't we of how whether it's been good for them this defeat um, I think it was coming they were they were obviously South Africa got close to them Australia got unexpectedly close to them in the summer they went to Japan with a different side and didn't have it all their own way um, so yeah may, maybe has refocused them I'm certainly not worried for their World Cup hopes and I still think with Ireland it is um, still going to be a big task to get through that World Cup quarterfinal, both psychologically and just because of how hard that side of the draw is. Uh, but how good is that tournament going to be as a whole? Hmm. Let's talk about what happened in Murrayfield next between Scotland and Wales. Quite an emphatic result for Scotland. Okay, Scotland made it two out of two for the first time in the Six Nations. I think it's the first time they've done it in sort of five Six Nations history since 1996. So basically, it's been a while. Um, we had a question from John Mullen, who I'm going to say is a friend of the podcast, who just simply said to us, can we beat France? I mean, can they? Scotland and France was an absolute belter a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Or last year, my memory's going. Yeah. Uh, it was a, so last year 
uh, France were phenomenal in Murrayfield. It was like Ireland at the we- at the weekend, as in well as in that they they mirrored their performance against Ireland at the weekend, but against a sort of inferior opposition last year. And then the year before, obviously Scotland went to Paris and won uh, behind closed doors or, or with a very very small crowd, maybe five thousand max. Or I think it was completely behind closed doors actually. Um, yeah, I think I think Scotland could go to Paris to win. I was chatting I was chatting to some some mates last night, and I, I maintain that there's still a surprise there's still a surprise a shock result left in in the six nations i don't think it is going to be routine i don't think it's going to be a foregone conclusion and then um but then you ask the question is is scotland going to france and winning after winning there two years ago and being unbeaten in this year's six nations a surprise um at the minute it wouldn't be that much of a shock but i, I think i think they certainly have the quality to it's just about whether they can keep a lid on on this on these french the individual French threats, really. If I work in the bath ticket office, I'm probably sending Finn Russell a nice box of chocolates with a bunch of flowers this week. Because given how he, given how he played against Wales with his kick pass and the assist for Kyle Stane, and just generally seeming incredibly happy with how things are going with him and Gregor Townsend, everyone's on the same page. Everybody's happy in Scotland are playing great. He was quite sensational, wasn't he, Charles? He was, yeah, and but the, all I would say is he was, he really, really was, and he was, and in the last fifteen minutes against England, he came into his own as well after a, a sort of a bit of a meandering performance for sixty minutes at Twickenham. He he sprung into life and he seemed to have walked straight off that Twickenham field and straight onto the pitch at Murrayfield, and he continued in that vein, and he was excellent. But all I would say is is that he can't do it. He can't do it alone, and I know that might be stating the obvious, but it's it's the other area. We all we, we've known we know about Finn Russell, and we know that Scotland have Finn Russell, and we know of his innate quality and his supreme talent at fly half and his attacking vision and his passing abilities. But it's always before that the line out and the scrum and the and the keeping hold of possession and the getting the go forward has been what's letting Scotland down. Um, whereas now that doesn't seem to be as much of a problem. They've they've shored up the scrum. Their defence is excellent. Um, their line out is is brilliant. Richie Gray is is in. It, you, you'd thought he was in the twilight of his career, but I think he's probably playing as well as he ever has. I want an answer from both of you. Can they actually win the title? Because you what have you got to play? You've got to play Ireland at home, France away. Is it impossible? With so I think we're talking about two divisions, three divisions maybe in this in the, in this Six Nations. I think Ireland and France are out on their own. I think Scotland are in that yep. sort of on their own, and then you've got the, the three others. I think maybe that's slightly unfair in Italy because they seem to be sort of building something, whereas England and Wales are really having to go back to the drawing board and seeing if they get quick fixes for the World Cup and then look beyond that to twenty twenty seven. I think I think I think Scotland will fancy. That island game, I really do, yeah. I, and I and I can't. I hope they, I hope they keep the members of that forward pack that have gone really well. I hope they they all stay fit. Matt Ferguson, if in, if Caelan Doris wasn't tearing up trees, he would be in the in the mix for the player of the first two rounds. Matt Ferguson, thirteen carries and nineteen tackles again. Um, that that back row, as, as Charles mentioned, with those two Edinburgh lads going really really well. Jamie Ritchie just quietly very effective all the time really needly he was excellent in the um even the even the optus kind of official stats on the on the ruck disruption didn't really kind of pick up his his influence as far as just being annoying with that mm. fa- stopping stopping england to get those um quick rucks back to back um i thought scotland actually they sort of had to work through their neuroses didn't they against wales which gatland tried to play on by picking a really young um, young pack. I thought Jenkins went really well for them. Raphael always plays well. He was good again. Um, 
and Shunza, 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 and Morgan. Uh, that makes an ex- that makes an exciting kind of blend for them. Looking mm. forward, but they're going to need they're going to need to be patient. Um, and Scotland kind of slightly edgy in the first half, but the way they almost it was almost like that final quarter against England again, where they just thought, right, okay, this is our time to shine. Blair King Hong came on, and I thought that's that's a big call they've got. That he starts ahead of Stuart Hogg. I would be inclined to make that make that change and and, and really because they're going to have to score points, aren't they, to be, to beat France? So um, yeah, in a in a really good in a really good spot, and why not? I agree uh, with Charles that there's some funkier results coming. We should talk about Wales. Oh boy. I I think I I liked what they tried to do in terms of giving David Jenkins a run, bringing Chris Chinzer at six. The Rafael and, and Morgan Chinzer back row was, was, was quite interesting. Discipline wise, they just completely lost their heads, didn't they? I think Gatlin said afterwards they considered nineteen penalties and and, and nineteen penalties is gonna get you get you nowhere at test level. Slightly concerning, even though David Jenkins looked quite good. It, I think the scale of the job that Gatland is facing might actually be a bit bigger than he realised. Mm-hmm. I think the side now also are in a bit of a in such a slump, confidence-wise, because that's now four defeats on the bounce. I think as well, a lot of alarm bells here, and not a lot of time to turn it around ahead of England coming to town in a couple of weeks' time. Do we sort of think, Charlie? I'll come to you first. What do you think of? What Wales are at? What Wales are at? Where Wales are at? Sorry, they're struggling. They're in a hole, as as Gatlin put it himself. I think actually one of the kind of most worrying passages of it was ironically that the sequence leading up to George Turner's yellow card, um, because they just they just went backwards and backwards and backwards and, and really didn't have any real penetration, any real ideas. I know um, Dan Bigger got his bit of stick for going kick to kick. Um, sorry, to, for kicking a cross to Josh Adams and then we had another kick in behind that's that's actually pretty smart but apart from that they once that kind of threat's gone it, it just looked bare and blunt what they what they were offering I think he that, got a bit of stick that other things as well didn't it because he basically did Scotland's team talk all on his own he did but that, oh, I think that was yeah. part of playing on those neuroses and it, and it kind of pays off or pays off or it doesn't and it doesn't and he, he did it really didn't he had a, he had a real go at, uh, at Rio Dyer didn't he at, uh, for that for that pass in the first half which I don't think is yeah. you know whether right or wrong I don't think on a sort of more fundamental broader level that that is necessarily the behavior of people who are completely secure and comfortable with how things are going at the minute i'm not sure such a public excoriation was necessarily the way that bigger should have been going about things just just to wrap up on wales gatlin should stick with the young guns do we think and just persist with this and try and blood them throughout this tournament i mean obviously the titles to the tournament have gone but if he's got an eye on the world cup and he wants to keep building cohesion in this pack and actually David Jenkins did play quite well it, it, that seems to be the way forward do we think just keep mm-hmm. at it keep the combinations going don't forget that this is a new defence coach a new attack coach a couple of weeks in and, and they're in a much worse place than England are sort of starting from does that seem like the right way forward I think bringing back the likes of the Valawinger I mean Halfpenny was also picked to start that first game against um against Ireland in round one uh, and obviously dropped out through injury. We don't know where he fits back in because Liam Williams has not been particularly impressive in the first two rounds. It's fair to say, obviously, he was yellow-carded at the weekend as well. Um, I think Lewis, Lewis Rees-Zamick comes straight back into that back three somewhere, maybe at 15, not sure. I think George North 
it, it has to stay at 13. I'm not convinced he is the, the correct option there, but he's he's probably the best option at the minute. Uh, I don't think Alan Wynne-Jones comes back in on form because I think the second rows have been going well and went well on Saturday. Um, Tipperick m- might deserve yeah, a, a I recall. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Do, do you go one over Raphael Morgan? Um, yeah. Because he's been very good for the Ospreys. I know he wasn't good against Ireland, but Tipperick has been excellent against the Ospre- uh, Sorry for the Ospreys. Uh, Reffel also has been fantastic for Leicester and was good on Saturday, and so was Morgan. I mean, is, is there an argument for going... It's very harsh on, on Shunza, but is, is there an argument for going Morgan, Morgan Tipperick, Reffel? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It, it, it does leave you a little bit lightweight, but also it, it can't be any worse than what the current situation, can it? The Gatland plan, and it won't change, I imagine, with Steve Borthwick back in charge of England has been obviously to starve England of lineouts, and so that I don't know that that certainly plays into how you configure your back row, doesn't it? Although Justin Tipperick, one reason that he's kind of he's so easy to balance the back row is is, is are his lineout skills as selection <laughs> selection is such a, such an interesting side of it, and it does feel like stick or twist for Gatland having having um, opted the way he did for the Scotland game. Yeah, it certainly does. Lots of questions for Gatland and a few questions for us after a quick break. That's a professional mistake with that. Um, as we just answer a few more of your readers' questions to round off the episode, so we'll be back in a bit. Okay, we've got a couple of readers' questions which we're just going to finish off with. Um, and one is, is on England's back row, which I want to come back to, which is from the Saints Supporters Club on Twitter, which says... Where does Tom Curry fit into this back row when he's fit? Do you move Lewis London to eight? Who misses out on the 23 from the four involved against Italy and with Curry coming back? It's a good question because I think we I think we all believe that Tom Curry is one of England's potentially few world-class players. So where is Steve Borthwick going to play in, Charlie? I read that as Tom Carey, first of all. Um, I, think, I think it's at six and I actually had a feeling and I... Really, 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 really do not want to put uh, words in Steve Borthwick's mouth because I I'm not, don't know this for sure, but I have a feeling that Tom Curry might have been mooted for blindside, which is where he was. We kind of tend to... Steve Borthwick has, I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast, how he's kind of got this reputation for maybe plumping for a kind of rangy rangy six as an extra line-out jumper, but he is also the guy that made Curry an underhill work and... Uh, with Billy Vinopola in the back row and he did that by upskilling uh, Tom Curry in in a line-out role. He's done that this time with Ludlam. Ludlam has been a real prominent uh, line-out jumper um, when um, Mario Toji and Oli Chesham have been marked up, which has been quite a lot. I imagine he would have taken, I don't know for sure, but if in- England had 21 line-outs all successful on, on, on Sunday against Italy and I imagine Ludlam took at least six or seven, um, I would think that and it's what's really interesting is that it's another explicit separation. And Charles, I remember you asking Eddie Jones this. You're saying, you know, come on, you've got to, haven't you really got to look at maybe trying to um, team up Tom Curry and Jack Willis? Um, and Eddie Jones was adamant that he couldn't do that because um, neither one of those two players had the lineout skills, despite the fact that Tom Curry had done it before. Um, short answer: I think Curry goes, to, Curry goes to six, and then it's one of either Willis or Ludlam at seven. I. <sighs> I, I still think that that eight slot is is open, and I mm. think that could be. I, th- I think Tom Willis comes into the come is going to come into the reckoning eventually. Um, We've seen Ludlam and Earl play at eight in the Six Nations. Yeah, yeah, he gave Ludlam a go there. Eddie Jones played Tom Curry at number eight. Yeah, it didn't work necessarily particularly well when Billy Vonapola was injured, but there is experience there, and he and you know Steve Borthwick might think that he can 
you know get more get more success out of that i don't know where, where we're seeing top, uh, alex donbrandt was actually england's top carrier just just in front of lawrence but the, mo- the majority of that was sort of from restarts where you, you know you're not it's not necessarily tapping into his intuition england aren't really there yet they nearly mm. got there against scotland but so you wonder whether that he could be the full guy because England just aren't managing to really get that kind of that Harlequins flow out yet. That, that could make Don Brandt the full guy because Ludlam is, is really important to say. Ludlam's been excellent, been re- really resourceful. Yeah, he has. I, w- I would concur with that. I think Ludlam's been really, really good for England. But again, you know, is it? It's it's harsh to drop him. But if 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 there's somebody better or there's a better combination there, then I, I think he will. He w- he won't be afraid of doing that. You know, I don't think necessarily just playing well is enough anymore. You know, when when Steve Borthwick took charge of Leicester, he uh, dropped a lot of very very good players who were very very in form. Uh, who you know, and the fans got very very upset. You know, you look at leaving Jack Van Portfleet out of the the, the the match day twenty three for the for the Premiership final last year, and having Ben Youngs on the bench. Uh, Nemanja Nandolo wasn't in the the, the twenty three for that for that final either. Um, and um, yeah, he's not afraid of he's not afraid of making selection calls calls that might upset individuals, even even if they sh- might appear harsh for the benefit of the wider team. I just say something on Ben Earl. You can feel how hard he's trying off the bench, and he's been pinged for two kind of jackals, potentially slightly unlucky. And it's kind of when he's kind of he's wheeled away from the breakdown and gone. No, that, yeah. I'm pretty sure I was legal there, both against um, Scotland and then against. In Italy, when he was chasing his own kick, potentially. Um, I'm not sure. The one against Scotland was certainly immensely harsh. Yeah, Gavin Markham, Will Ford make the squad. At Marcus Smith's expense. Got one from Ben, the fabulously named Ben Bacon on on Twitter. Why bring Nick Evans in and then resort to a turgid attacking game plan? Why not give Marcus Smith a run at ten with Lawrence at twelve? I found it odd that. Um, that Farrell came on at twelve and they didn't give. Maybe it's because it was slightly in the balance and it was a. It was kind of to applaud how Italy had gone and stayed in the game, but why why Farrell shifted to twelve as opposed to giving Marcus Smith those tools that um, Lawrence Slade um, combination? I think I hope that he gets that chance because um, to go back to Gavin's point, George Ford will come back for sure. Playing devil's advocate, Marcus Smith has won a lot of his caps for England without Owen Farrell. Is all I would say. And while while I agree, and it's it hasn't been under this coaching team and under this strategy. Marcus Smith has had plenty of occasions to to grasp hold of that fly half jersey and make it his own without Owen Farrell when Farrell's been either injured or suspended and he hasn't quite done that yet so how much longer should we hold out I mean I I agree I agree um, broadly because obviously this is a new coaching staff and he's now got his attack coach with Harlequins Nick Evans working with him so I would like to see that but at some point I think pinning the entire sort of attacking hopes of English rugby on Marcus Smith if he can't reproduce it on the biggest stage it's going to have to sort of go in the coffin as it were we obviously don't know this Charlie but is that do you think sort of that substitution reflects on maybe how you've got two different philosophies between what Borthwick might want and what Nick Evans might want and how they're just trying to work out what the best way forward is because I agree it doesn't really it didn't really show you a lot sort of having that did it I don't see um, 
So Steve, Stephen Coleman's also asked the question with about how Slade and Lawrence went and how we've got to stop talking about centre positions. I agree with that. It's about roles, absolutely. And, and Slade was that second ball player. England always want, I think, two ball players on the pitch, whether that's Farrell and Slade or uh, Farrell and Smith or Ford and, um, Ford and Farrell, if that time comes um, because all of their strike plays are set up like that with the hard runner and then options out the back and Lawrence was obviously the hard runner in that case Marchant had to take on that role in the first week because um, because of what they had available Um, I think that what what Nick Evans has been brought in to do is not necessarily to impart implement a Harlequin's philosophy it's to get them playing at at pace um, and and to just hone what they can do off those quick rucks and I think as it's really interesting that one of the one of the kind of points Steve Borthwick made was that Italy slowed down England's ball I think they still didn't do enough with the quick ball opportunities that they had but I do think that that changeover of um, of midfield as we spoke at the beginning maybe set them back a little bit because they there were some nice bits in, in Scotland probably nicer bits than there were in Italy but then with Italy you had the mall going you had the mall um, stepping forward in the mall so that was that positive um yeah, has that answered that? Hopefully, I think so. And, and probably good to end on a question about England's midfield. So, big thanks to Charlie and Charles as always. There are no Six Nations games this weekend, but the three of us will still be here next Monday between now and the end of the Six Nations as well. So we'll keep keep up to date with all our work from the three of us and expert analysis on the website from Gavin Mayers, Will Greenwood, Brian Moore, and everybody else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and please tell your friends and family about it and what a lovely time you've had. And we'll uh, see you next week. Cheers.